Welcome to the Cochrane Trainees Podcast, brought to you by Cochrane UK, inspiring medical and dental trainees to engage in evidence. Never miss a podcast. Sign up for the Cochrane Trainees Digest at uk.cochrane.org forward slash trainees. So hello, this is Rachel from the Cochrane UK Trainees Committee. I'm here with Joe Morrison, uh, who's a consultant gynae oncologist, um, who also works as an editor of the Cochrane Review Group for Gynecology and Oncology. So it's nice to meet you, Joe. Nice to meet you too. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. I guess one of my first questions to you is, um, what do you do as a as a as a researcher at Cochrane? Um, so. As the coordinating editor of the group, um, and there, there are a couple of us because our group spans both gynae-oncology, neuro-oncology and what we call the orphan cancer group, so right. they're the sort of general topics that don't really fit okay, in the sure. special yeah. group. So that is about helping author teams to write reviews uh, and so it's, it's sort of support and also quality assurance um, in order to get reviews to the required standard and then decide whether they're okay for us to be able to publish them or not on the, on the Cochrane Library. So it also involves um, work in terms of prioritising which reviews we want to support mm-hmm. um, and making sure that the author teams that we have um, look like they have enough um experience in terms of clinical experience, methodological experience and sort of workforce in order mm. to be actually be able to do the review without requiring too much effort from the review group. Sure. And so I suppose one of the other things that I would find really interesting is to know how you got involved with Cochrane uh, or what sort of started things off for you. So um, I got involved with evidence-based medicine when I was a student. So um, Clive, from the, who's the coordinating editor for the, um, the men- mental, mental, mental health, health group, um, they uh, were doing a study comparing, um, so in the early days of PubMed and things like that, they were comparing hand searching with um, computer searching. So oh, okay. when it was um, good enough, I think. And I think they were... Um, as a student, we were never really, I, was, I don't know if I was ever really sure exactly what they were doing, but we were <laughs> basically recruited um, to uh, spend evenings in the Warnerford searching through all of the paper in the days before computers yes. and PDFs, and you know, you literally were going through volumes of the yes. journals. You didn't get much sunlight. Identifying <laughs> re- the, the reviews physically. Yeah. Yeah, which makes me feel quite old now. Um, <laughs> And that was interesting, and you know, there was, it's a little bite-sized chunks from just a, uh, in the very early days of, of Cochrane, um, of, of just being involved and getting an idea about evidence-based medicine. And then, I think the thing that really was the real inspiration in terms of evidence-based medicine was that I was one of David Sackett's health officers here, okay. yeah. who um, was a completely inspirational. Uh, consultant he challenged um, how you thought about things he um, made you think about what the evidence was for almost everything that you did so that included you know when the edema was effective at seeing if you had raised intracranial pressure so all sorts of little things and he'd give you like this prescription so you give all the students in the, in the house offices we get little prescriptions to go away and find out what the evidence was for something so he challenged your assumptions and, and taught you to challenge assumptions and ask why. That's really interesting because I think as doctors we make so many, as junior doctors 
especially we make lots of sort of micro decisions throughout the day about what to do for patients and it's not often that you stop to think about exactly why is it why am I doing this yeah and it was really formative for me as a doctor and it still influences my day-to-day practice in terms of you know don't you know his mantra was you know don't do a test if the result isn't going to affect your management because you're wasting the test you're putting someone through interventions that will have potential side effects mm-hmm. and every test is a plus positive and plus negative yes. and on, on making you really think on a on a really detailed level about how you investigated and cared for patients and the whole concept of number needed to treat and number needed to harm and um just his it was a real clarity of thought and it really defined me as a doctor is that has that influenced how you treat your trainees now that you're a consultant yeah I, I yeah and, and, and you know I, I don't like doing routine tests so I yes. say you know how's that so I'll challenge them and say how's that going to change your management what are you going to do if that's how or low or have you thought about what the next step is rather than having reflex reasons for doing things um, it, it made it challenging for me to be a trainee um, especially in the surgical specialty, yes. where um, I honestly wanted to know why we did something, so that I could improve my knowledge, um, so that I could apply the evidence base to it, and 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 improve my understanding of mm-hmm. of of how people thought about management and what the evidence was for that what they were doing, and. Uh, I discovered that that is actually really very challenging to a lot of doctors because they probably don't know. Mm. And um, rather than taking that as an honest uh, source for truth and source for understanding, I think people often found that quite challenging, Mm. personally. And I know that one of my trainees who previously worked for Cochrane before she had an intimate even um, had a similar experience. Mm. So I don't necessarily think that it made an easy life for myself. Yes. But um, but it definitely, you know, has continued to define how I practice medicine. I, mean, I suppose some of the challenges with using evidence-based medicine on the wards is that people perceive there to be a lot of time pressure in terms of I need to make a decision now because um, I need to do this thing for this patient and then I've got to go and see this other patient and then I've got to do all these other things. Mm. How do you marry up the looking up an evidence base with your own practice and do it in a sort of practical way? Well, I guess you reduce some time pressures because if you're not doing things that are ineffective, then you're yes. not spending your time looking at test yes. results that you didn't actually need to do in the first yes. place. So it's about um, using resources and that includes your own time. And I think in medicine we're very bad at valuing our time and yes. the time of our colleagues uh, to, to its best ends. Um, and you know, certainly with the increasing cash-strapped situation yes. in the NHS, I think you know we all need to be very mindful of that. So, um, and actually, I think Sackett taught me that it doesn't take very long. I mean, yeah. now especially with, I mean, in those days there was one computer on on the wall, full stop. You know, when I started as a medical student, I think there were two computers in college. So actually, you know, we wrote all our yeah. everything by hand. Um, so. You know, I think 
there is a lot of information out there, but it's now much more easily sourceable and findable. And also there are now systematic reviews, which is what makes life much easier for you, is because someone has probably already gone to the trouble of evaluating that for you. Um, and that's why I like the Cochrane reviews, because it is a very rigorous way of analysing and synthesising the information. And then it can be used um, and to develop guidelines and you know, that's something that also um, it's something that I've become involved with is making sure that that evidence and that rigour of critical appraisal gets put into uh, the guidance that we develop and it's not uh, especially in a very surgical ego-based subject that's something that uh, we need to make sure that we have rather than force of opinion and surgical ego taking over which can happen. Do you think, have you found that there's been less pushback in more recent years to when you do start? Because I feel like there are lots of hospital guidelines now, and I'm not surprised as a junior doctor myself to be given a guideline for looking after someone with a specific condition. Do you think that we've, the culture has changed and we're more... Well, yeah, I mean, I remember, I mean, in the early days of evidence-based medicine, there was this big fight between Sackett and the um, the the grandfathers of medicine who said, well, we do all this, you know, just do it, <laughs> and you evaluate it, and and uh, this is just sensible medicine. But uh, uh, and, and, but actually they sort of missed the point that Sackett wasn't suggesting that they didn't use their clinical acumen. It's just that they, they, knew, they knew what the value of their clinical acumen, so they knew which tests that they were doing that were more likely to be sensitive or specific and and so that they actually had some basis for that rather than hunch that, you know, they were quite good at something. So, and, and yeah, and there was quite a lot of kickback in those early days about guidance and protocols and how people were restrained by those. And um, and I think that certainly in gynaecology with the development of the multidisciplinary team and network guidance and things, it's streamlined and unified care a lot better. Yeah. Um, and there's less, less left maverick tendency, and and people get. I think it does deliver better care within that framework. And I, you know, I'd be very, I'd be very happy with a patient being looked after in, a, in an NDT setting. And I think there are benefits to that. Yeah, that patients who perhaps pay and go privately don't get because they don't get that the the, the weight of opinion and different angles yeah, as opposed to that. Yeah. Well, one one thing I would really like to pick your brains about in particular is I think for medical specialties or in um, in for GPs it's very obvious to see how research and evidence-based medicine can improve their practice so for example if you are an academic um, respiratory physician the the work that you do there may you can see how, how it directly affects how you look after patients with a surgical specialty it's slightly less clear exactly how doing research improves your ability to be a good surgeon. I wonder what you're taking that was. Um, because I think we need to remember in surgery that there's lots of things that we could do, but we need to know what we should do. And that um, that needs to be based on evidence, but it also needs to be based on our assessment of the patient. And yeah. so there's clinical acumen involved in that. And I think... Surgery is no different to medicine, that there is a number needed to treat and a number needed to harm, and maybe they are a bit more binary in surgery and a bit more obvious. Um, but 
you know, it doesn't mean that there aren't there. And, and certainly doing surgical trials is more challenging. Um, and what's probably even more challenging is getting people to believe the results of surgical yeah. trials mm-hmm. when there is almost a religiously held belief that that is not the case when a, when a, a, a trial maybe shows another outcome that they mm-hmm. that people didn't want. Yes, yes. Um, when, when you were starting out with your career in evidence-based medicine, um, I think as someone who's starting out, it can be quite daunting looking at the skills that you need and the time that you need to really do some good quality research. How did you get, how did you gain those skills throughout your training? Um, so I was lucky that when I started doing my first Cochrane review, the group was based in Oxford at that time, and so um, I had a a lot of help from the, man- the then managing editor of designing my tra- my search strategy. She mm-hmm. helped me with that and then running the review. And one of the other authors had done a review before. And I think I think things are easier now. So there may be more trials, but some of the new uh, technologies that are coming through to help you do a review make life much easier and they but they break that down into bite-sized chunks mm-hmm. so compared to my okay compared to so so compared to when I first you know the first search that we did which was um, a dot matrix printer spread over hundreds of pages printed out Gosh. a copy of the first so we we title on the abstract and you were physically doing that and working through that list. Now there is confidence that you can upload your your uh, search strategy t- results to. You can very quickly sift on your iPhone, you know, in between cases and theatre mm-hmm. while you're waiting for the patient to go to sleep or, you know, on the bus or it's really easy to do without having this yeah. huge pile of paper that you had to trog around with you. physically go down yeah. to it. And, and it means that it's easier to do and collaborate at a distance. Mm. So you can fit it in around things a lot more. And the, you know, and even there's the new tools that are going to do that can actually sift the search strategy for you. I mean, I think we're... And the crowd sifting. Yes, I mean, I think we're... At, the point where there's some really exciting developments that are actually going to make the re- the real drudgery of a systemic systematic review better, and I think that's really exciting. So, I think you find the time, mm. um, and we you know we had less time then, and you, you if it's important to you, you'll do it. And I don't think. Um, Anyone can. It's it, Cochrane reviews are always important, but not urgent. And the problem is prioritizing them for yourself. Yeah. So if you want to do one, you can actually do a review in a few months if you actually knuckle down and just do it, and you're not mm-hmm. doing anything else. So it's about doing. It's about effective learning, effective time management skills, and and you can go on courses to do that. And they, and whether they're effective or not, I don't know. But. Uh, it was something when I was doing my PhD that the university offered those sort of courses and they gave some quite good tips about doing little and often mm-hmm. so it kept it fresh and uh, and then it just it, it sort of breaks it down it's not this monster that's sitting there that you somehow yeah. have to fight but you make your monster a bit smaller and actually doing it is not 
uh, hard, especially in surgical specialty, where there are actually that, not that many reviews. Yes, anyway, yeah. It's just about getting on with it, really. So I suppose one of the take-home messages of advice that you have is that you need to sort of break it up into milestones, yeah. don't you? Yeah, you need to and, and, and do things in small pieces frequently and not have the blocks to, oh, well, I need to have a whole morning so I can sit down and do the sift. You actually need to be prepared to do little and often. Uh, and also, my real advice is to to just for life in general and coping in the NHS is that actually some time management skills are worth learning because it doesn't get any better. <laughs> As a consultant, gets much worse. You discover that the medicine's the easy bit. It's all the other rubbish that goes with it that's the hard bit. The medicine's the fun and the easy bit. What's your um, one pearl of advice for time management? Try to... Uh, develop internal deadlines rather than work to external deadlines. So and make those quite considerably before your real deadline. Uh, uh, that requires a certain. It requires you to develop that personality type if you don't have it naturally. But it means that you do uh, important but not urgent things in a timely way where you can actually concentrate it on it mm. and it's not so stressful. But if you leave it until the dead just two minutes before the deadline then it becomes urgent and important and yeah. that's just makes your life miserable well thank you very much for your time that was a really really interesting and really inspiring interview thank you so much for coming this afternoon well good luck because i think you know it's important that it's not just about training cochrane reviews it's about developing an interest that's going to see you through a long consultant career because you will be a consultant for a long time and it's important to have the other bits on the side that keep you interested thank you for listening to find out more about the trainees project go to uk.cochrane.org forward slash trainees or follow us on twitter at cochrane uk thank you this podcast was presented by rachel produced by jack and narrated by me farrow join us next time